Chapter 10 David Magerman shut the door of his Boston apartment well before dawn on a cool morning in the fall of 1994. He jumped into a silver Toyota Corolla, adjusted the car's manual windows, and headed south. The 26-year-old drove more than three hours on Interstate 95 before catching a ferry to the tip of Long Island, arriving for a job interview at Renaissance Technologies offices in Stony Brook before 10 a.m. Magerman seemed a shoe-in for the position. Jim Simons, Henry Laufer, Nick Patterson, and other staffers were acclaimed mathematicians and theoreticians, but Renaissance was starting to develop more complex computer trading models, and few employees could program very well. That was Magerman's specialty. He'd completed a productive stint at IBM, getting to know Peter Brown and Bob Mercer, and it was Brown who had invited him for the morning visit, giving Magerman reason to expect things to go well. They didn't. Magerman arrived exhausted from his morning journey, regretting his penny-pinching decision not to fly from Boston. Almost immediately, Renaissance staffers got under Magerman's skin, presenting a series of difficult questions and tasks to test his competence in mathematics and other areas. Simons was low-key in a brief sit-down, but one of his researchers grilled Magerman on an obscure academic paper, making him work out a vexing problem at a tall whiteboard. It didn't seem fair. The paper was the staffer's own overlooked PhD dissertation, yet he expected Magerman to somehow demonstrate a mastery of the topic. Magerman took the challenges a bit too personally, unsure why he was being asked to prove himself, and he overcompensated for his nervousness by acting cockier than he actually felt. By the day's end, Simons's team had decided Magerman was too immature for the job. His appearance added to the juvenile image. Sandy-haired and husky, with a baby face and rosy pink cheeks, Magerman looked very much like an overgrown boy. Brown stood up for Magerman, vouching for his programming skills, while Mercer also lent support. They both saw Medallion's computer code growing in size and complexity and concluded that the hedge fund desperately needed additional firepower. You're sure about him? Someone asked Brown. You're sure he's good? Trust us. Brown responded. Later, when Magerman expressed interest in the job, Brown toyed with him, pretending that Renaissance had lost its interest, a prank that left Magerman anxious for days. Finally, Brown extended a formal offer. Magerman joined the firm in the summer of 1995, determined to do everything possible to win over his doubters. Until then, Magerman had spent much of his life trying to please authority figures, usually with mixed results. Growing up, Magerman had a strained relationship with his father, Melvin, a Brooklyn cabbie plagued with awful luck. Unable to afford a taxi medallion in New York, Melvin moved his family to Kendall, Florida, 14 miles southwest of Miami, ignoring David's heated protests. On the eve of their departure, the eight-year-old ran away from home in a fit of anger, getting as far as a neighbor's house across the street, where he spent the afternoon until his parents retrieved him. For several years, Melvin drove a taxi, stuffing cash into Maxwell House coffee tins hidden around the home as he and his brother-in-law, with help from a wealthy patron, crafted a plan to buy a local cab company. On the eve of the deal, the patron suffered a fatal heart attack, scuttling Melvin's big plans. Plagued by depression throughout his life, Melvin found his mood turning still darker, 
and he was unable to drive a cab. Melvin collected rent at his brother-in-law's trailer park as his mental health deteriorated further. He grew aloof with David and his sister, both of whom had close relationships with their mother, Sheila, an office manager at an accounting firm. The Magerman family lived in a lower-middle-class neighborhood, populated by a mix of young families, criminals, and oddballs, including drug dealers across the street who entertained visitors at all hours, and a gun nut who liked to shoot at birds, which landed with some regularity in the Magerman backyard. For most of his youth, David skirted serious trouble. To raise spending cash, he hawked flowers on the side of a road and sold candy in school. He'd buy candy bars and other merchandise with his father at a local drugstore and sell it out of a duffel bag to classmates at slightly higher prices. The unsanctioned business thrived until the school's rival candy man, a muscular Russian kid, was busted and pointed to David as his operation's ringleader. The school's principal, who already had labeled David a troublemaker, suspended him. While serving time in a library room with other miscreants, as in the breakfast club, an attractive female classmate asked David to join her cocaine delivery operation in Miami. It wasn't clear if she realized David had been busted for distributing Snickers and Three Musketeers bars, experience that wouldn't have been of much use when selling cocaine. David politely declined, noting that he had only a bicycle for transportation. David placed most of his focus on his studies, relishing the unequivocal praise he received from teachers, parents, and others especially after winning trophies at academic competitions. David participated in a local program for gifted students, learned to program computers at a community college, and won a scholarship after seventh grade to attend a private middle school a 45-minute bus ride away. There he learned Latin and jumped two grades in math. Outside the classroom, David felt ostracized. He was insecure about his family's economic position, especially compared with those of his new schoolmates, and vowed to enjoy his own wealth one day. David ended up spending large chunks of the day in the school's computer lab. That's where we nerds hid from the football players, he says. At home, Melvin, a math whiz who never had the opportunity to fully employ his talents, took his frustrations out on his son. After Melvin criticized David for being overweight, the young man became a long-distance runner, starving himself one summer until he showed signs of anorexia, hoping for some kind of praise from his father. Later, David entered long-distance races, emulating his track coach, though his body usually broke down by the 13th mile of their training sessions. I was easily motivated by coaches, Magerman recalls. He continued to seek the approval of those in positions of power and seek new father figures even as he developed a mystifying need to pick fights, even unnecessary ones. I needed to right wrongs and fight for justice, even if I was turning molehills into mountains, Megerman acknowledges. I clearly had a messiah complex. One year in high school, when he learned a track meet was scheduled for the second night of Passover, Megerman rallied local rabbis to his cause to have the meet canceled. His disappointed teammates didn't understand why Megerman cared so much. Even he wasn't entirely sure. I was a mediocre runner and wasn't even religious. I don't think we even had a second Seder, Megerman recalls. It was a schmucky thing to do. During his senior year, 
Megerman and a couple of friends announced they were leaving to spend the second semester studying at a school in Israel, partly because the principal of their high school had warned him against the idea. Megerman seemed to be searching for structure in his life. In Jerusalem, the young man began memorizing religious books, studying history, and adopting religious practices, drinking in the praise from teachers and the school's headmaster. Before leaving for Israel, Megerman left his college essays and applications with his mother in Florida so she could mail them to the various schools. That spring, Megerman was accepted by the University of Pennsylvania but was rejected by every other Ivy League school, surprising and disappointing him. Years later, while clearing out his mother's home, Megerman stumbled upon a copy of his Harvard University application. He discovered that she had reworked his essay, as she had for almost every other school, excising all references to Israel and Judaism, worried that anti-Semitism might deter schools from accepting him. For whatever reason, she thought Penn was a Jewish university, so she left that one untouched. Megerman thrived at Penn, partly because he had embraced a new cause, proving the other schools had made a mistake turning him down. He excelled in his majors, computer science and mathematics. Chosen to be a teaching assistant in a computational linguistics course, he lapped up the resulting attention and respect of his fellow students, especially the co-eds. His senior year thesis also gained some recognition. Megerman, an adorable, if insecure, teddy bear of a kid, was finally in his element. At Stanford University, Megerman's doctoral thesis tackled the exact topic Brown, Mercer, and other IBM researchers were struggling with how computers could analyze and translate language using statistics and probability. In 1992, IBM offered Megerman an internship. By then, he had adopted a somewhat thicker exterior and flourished in the group's sharp-elbowed culture. Megerman eventually received a full-time position at IBM, though he saw less success in other areas of his life. After spotting a young woman named Jennifer in his group, Megerman hit on her suffering almost immediate rejection. She wanted nothing to do with me, he says. It probably was for the best. It turned out that Jennifer, who went by Genji, was the eldest daughter of Bob Mercer. When Megerman joined Renaissance in 1995, Simons's firm didn't seem close to becoming an investing power. Its headquarters had been built to house a cutting-edge startup, but the dreary space, close to a hospital, looked more appropriate for a fading insurance company. Simons's 30 or so employees sat in drab cubicles and nondescript offices. The walls were a bare, ugly off-white, and the furniture resembled rent-a-center rejects. On warm days, Simons meandered around in Bermuda shorts and open-toed sandals, underscoring the hedge fund's not-ready-for-prime-time feel. Yet there also was something vaguely intimidating about the place, at least to Megerman. Part of it was simply the stature of his new colleagues, figuratively and physically. Almost everyone was well over six feet tall, towering over the five-foot-five Megerman, breeding new insecurities in The Bachelor. Megerman didn't have friends or family in the area either. He was thrilled when Mercer's wife, Diana, invited him to a family movie outing, capped by dessert at a Friendly's restaurant. Megerman gratefully joined the Mercers on subsequent evenings, easing his transition. It didn't take long for Megerman to realize Renaissance had a serious problem on its hands. 
Frey's stock trading system had proved a dud, losing nearly 5% of its money in 1994. There was a certain genius to Frey's model. Its statistical arbitrage trades looked great on paper and should have made a lot of money. They never did, though, at least not nearly as much as the model's simulations suggested they should. It was like detecting obvious signs of gold buried deep in a mountain without having a reliable way to get it out. In meetings, Simon sometimes shook his head, appearing to grow disappointed with the system, which they called Nova, taking the name of Frey's firm, which had been subsumed into Renaissance. It's just limping along, Simon said one day. Mercer, who continued to work with Brown on the side, tweaking their own version of a stock trading model, diagnosed the key problem. With a look of delight on his face, Mercer roamed the halls quoting a proverb, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. In those few words, Mercer was acknowledging that Frey's trading system was churning out brilliant trade ideas. But something was going wrong as it tried to implement the trades, preventing the system from making much money. Eventually, Simons and Frey decided it was best for Frey to shift to a different company project. I wasn't the best person to get the trains running on time, he acknowledges. Around the same time, Mercer won approval from Simons to join Brown in the stock research area. It was a last chance for Simons to create something special and grow his firm. Guys, let's make some money, Simons said in a weekly meeting, his patience appearing to grow thin. The Brown-Mercer reunion represented a new chapter in an unusual partnership between two scientists with distinct personalities who worked remarkably well together. Brown was blunt, argumentative, persistent, loud, and full of energy. Mercer conserved his words and rarely betrayed emotion, as if he was playing a never-ending game of poker. The pairing worked, though, yin with yang. Years earlier, as Brown was completing his doctoral thesis, he shed some light on how much he leaned on his cryptic colleague. Time and time again, I would come up with some idea and then realized that it was just something that Bob had urged me to try months before, Brown wrote in his introduction. It was as if, step by step, I was uncovering some master plan. At industry conferences during their tenure at IBM, Brown and Mercer sometimes sat together, rose from the stage, consumed by their intense chess matches, while ignoring the ongoing lectures until it was time for their own presentation. They developed a certain work style, Brown would quickly write drafts of their research and then pass them to Mercer, a much better writer, who would begin slow and deliberate rewrites. Brown and Mercer threw themselves into their new assignment to revamp Frey's model. They worked late into the evening and even went home together. During the week, they shared a living space in the attic of a local elderly woman's home, returning to their families on weekends. Over time, Brown and Mercer discovered methods to improve Simons' stock trading system. It turned out that Frey's model made suggestions that were impractical or even impossible. For example, the Nova Fund faced broker-imposed limits to the amount of leverage or borrowed money it could use. So, when Nova's leverage crossed a certain threshold, Frey and staffers manually shrank the portfolio to remain within the necessary limits overriding their model's recommendations. Other times, Frey's model picked trades that seemed attractive but couldn't actually be completed. For instance, it told Nova to short or bet against certain stocks 
that weren't actually available to be sold, so Frey had to ignore the recommendations. Not completing desired trades resulted in more than just poor performance. The factor trading system generated a series of complicated and intertwined trades, each necessary to score profits while also keeping risk at reasonable levels. By contrast, futures trading was simple stuff. If a trade didn't happen, there were few consequences. With Frey's stock trading system, failing to get just a few moves done threatened to make the entire portfolio more sensitive to market shifts, jeopardizing its overall health. And missed trades sometimes cascaded into bigger systemic problems that compromised the accuracy of the entire model. Getting it even a little wrong caused big problems that Frey and his team, using mid-1990s technology and their own subpar software engineering skills, couldn't address. It was like finding a common solution to hundreds of equations simultaneously, Frey says. Brown and Mercer seized on a different approach. They decided to program the necessary limitations and qualifications into a single trading system that could automatically handle all potential complications. Since Brown and Mercer were computer scientists, and they had spent years developing large-scale software projects at IBM and elsewhere, they had the coding chops to build a single automated system for trading stocks. By contrast, the coding of Frey's previous system had been done piecemeal, making it hard to unify the entire portfolio in a way that allowed it to meet all of the trading requirements. The people at Renaissance didn't really know how to make big systems, Mercer later explained. Brown and Mercer treated their challenge as a math problem, just as they had with language recognition at IBM. Their inputs were the fund's trading costs, its various leverages, risk parameters, and assorted other limitations and requirements. Given all of those factors, they built the system to solve and construct an ideal portfolio, making optimal decisions all day long to maximize returns. The beauty of the approach was that, by combining all their trading signals and portfolio requirements into a single, monolithic model, Renaissance could easily test and add new signals, instantly knowing if the gains from a potential new strategy were likely to top its costs. They also made their system adaptive, or capable of learning and adjusting on its own, much like Henry Laufer's trading system for futures. If the model's recommended trades weren't executed, for whatever reason, it's self-corrected, automatically searching for buy or sell orders to nudge the portfolio back where it needed to be, a way of solving the issue that had hamstrung Frey's model. The system repeated on a loop several times an hour, conducting an optimization process that weighed thousands of potential trades before issuing electronic trade instructions. Rivals didn't have self-improving models. Renaissance now had a secret weapon, one that would prove crucial to the fund's future success. Eventually, Brown and Mercer developed an elaborate stock trading system that featured a half million lines of code, compared to tens of thousands of lines in Frey's old system. The new system incorporated all necessary restrictions and requirements. In many ways, it was just the kind of automated trading system Simons had dreamed of years earlier. Because the Nova Fund's stock trades were now less sensitive to the market's fluctuations, it began holding on to shares a bit longer, two days or so, on average. Crucially, Brown and Mercer retained the prediction model Frey had developed 
from his Morgan Stanley experience. It continued to identify enough winning trades to make serious money, usually by wagering on reversions after stocks got out of whack. Over the years, Renaissance would add twists to this bedrock strategy, but for more than a decade, those would just be second-order complements to the firm's core reversion to the mean predictive signals. An employee boils it down succinctly. We make money from the reactions people have to price moves. Brown and Mercer's new and improved trading system was implemented in 1995, a welcome relief for Simons and others. Soon, Simons made Brown and Mercer partners in Renaissance, and they were elevated to managers, receiving points, or a percentage of the firm's profits, like other senior members of the team. Simons acted too quickly, it turned out. It soon became clear that the new stock trading system couldn't handle much money, undermining Simons's original purpose in pushing into equities. Renaissance placed a puny $35 million in stocks. When more money was traded, the gains dissipated, much like Frey's system a couple years earlier. Even worse, Brown and Mercer couldn't figure out why their system was running into so many problems. Looking for help, they began to reassemble their team from IBM, recruiting new talent, including the Della Pietra twins, and then Magerman, who hoped to be the one to save the system. As soon as he joined Renaissance, Magerman focused on solving problems and gaining the appreciation of his new colleagues. At one point, Magerman convinced staffers that they needed to learn C++, a general-purpose computer language that he insisted was much better than C and other languages the hedge fund used. C is so 1980, Magerman told a colleague. It was true that C++ was a better language, though the shift wasn't quite as necessary as he suggested, especially at that juncture. Magerman, an expert in C++, had an ulterior motive. He wanted to become indispensable to his office mates. His stratagem worked. The company converted to C++, and before long, mathematicians and others were begging Magerman for help, day and night. I became their pet, he recalls. Magerman spent all of his free time learning the firm's stock trading tactics, devouring each morsel of information. Brown, who had a natural ability to understand the needs of underlings, acted impressed, sensing he could motivate Magerman to work even harder by lobbing some accolades his way. I really thought it would take you more time to develop such deep knowledge of the stock trading system, Brown told him one day, as Magerman beamed with pride. Magerman understood Brown was manipulating him, but he soaked the compliments up nonetheless, eager to find additional ways to help. Back at IBM, Magerman had developed a script or a short list of instructions to monitor the memory and resources of the company's computers so he and others could commandeer the top brass's powerful and underutilized machines to enter outside coding competitions and engage in other unauthorized activity. Magerman, who had found an ingenious way to erase traces of his activity, called his program Joshua. After the computer gifted with artificial intelligence, in the 1983 hacker film War Games. Eventually, Magerman was caught by a furious IBM executive who said his machine had been purchased under a top-secret government contract and could contain classified material. He threatened to report Magerman for committing a federal crime. How was I supposed to know? Magerman responded, referring to the company's secret relationship with the government. 
Megerman's hacking continued, of course, but he and his colleagues made sure to sidestep the angry executive's computer and tap into others' machines instead when they needed extra computing power. At Renaissance, Megerman rewrote the same monitoring tool. True, there weren't any underused computers at the hedge fund like there were at IBM, but Megerman thought his program could be useful, at least down the line. Mostly, he just couldn't help himself. I wanted to be the most indispensable person in the company, he explains. Megerman tricked Renaissance's systems administrator and created a backdoor way to launch his monitoring system. Then he sat back in his chair, proudly, waiting for the accolades to roll in. Megerman's high lasted a fleeting moment or two. Suddenly, he heard shouts from alarmed colleagues. As Megerman stared at his computer screen, his jaw dropped. His unauthorized monitoring program had unleashed a computer virus that was infecting Renaissance's computers smack in the middle of the trading day, jeopardizing all kinds of research. As staffers raced to deal with the crisis, an abashed Megerman admitted he was responsible for the chaos. Staffers were furious. The equities team wasn't making any money, and now the stupid group was crashing the network. Brown, red with rage, hustled over to Megerman and got in his face. This isn't IBM, Brown screamed. We're trading real money here. If you get in the way with your stupid stunts, you're going to ruin things for us. Weeks into his tenure, Megerman was a sudden outcast. He fretted about his job and wondered if he had any future at Renaissance. It was a huge blunder, socially, he says. The gaffe couldn't have come at a worse time. Brown and Mercer's new stock trading system was struggling with a painful and inexplicable losing streak. Something was awry, and no one could figure out what it was. Members of the futures team, which continued to rack up profits, whispered that the problem stemmed from the new hires, who were just computer guys. Even at Renaissance, that could be a diss, it turned out. In public, Simons professed confidence, encouraging his team to keep at it. We have to keep trying, he said in a group meeting in the summer of 1995, still an intimidating presence despite his shorts and sandals. Privately, though, Simons wondered if he was wasting his time. Maybe the team would never figure out equities, and Renaissance was destined to remain a relatively small futures trading firm. It was a conclusion Laufer, Patterson, and others in the futures group already had reached. We had given it years already, Patterson says. If I was calling the shots, I might very well have pulled the plug. Simons remained a stubborn optimist, but even he decided enough was enough. Simons gave Brown and Mercer an ultimatum. Get your system to work in the next six months or I'm pulling the plug. Brown stayed up nights searching for a solution, sleeping on a Murphy bed built into his office. Mercer's hours weren't quite as long, but they were equally intense. They still couldn't find the problem. The trading system scored sizable gains when it managed tiny amounts of money, but when Simons fed it leverage and the trades got bigger, profits evaporated. Brown and Mercer's simulations kept saying they should be making money with the larger sums, but the system's actual moves were losers, not unlike Frey's own trades years earlier. Mercer seemed calm and unperturbed, but Brown's nerves were on edge as others turned anxious around him. Every two- or three-day losing streak felt like the beginning of the end, 
says a team member. Magerman watched the mounting frustrations and ached to aid the effort. If he could save the day, maybe he'd win his bosses over, despite his earlier costly flub. Magerman knew enough at that point not to volunteer his assistance. On his own, though, he pored over code, day and night. At the time, Magerman lived in an apartment that was an absolute mess. It lacked a working stove, and there was usually close to nothing in the refrigerator. So he effectively lived in the office, searching for a way to help. Early one evening, his eyes blurry from staring at his computer screen for hours on end, Magerman spotted something odd. A line of simulation code used for Brown and Mercer's trading system showed the Standard & Poor's 500 at an unusually low level. This test code appeared to use a figure from back in 1991 that was roughly half the current number. Mercer had written it as a static figure, rather than as a variable that updated with each move in the market. When Magerman fixed the bug and updated the number, a second problem, an algebraic error, appeared elsewhere in the code. Magerman spent most of the night on it, but he thought he solved that one too. Now the simulator's algorithms could finally recommend an ideal portfolio for the Nova system to execute, including how much borrowed money should be employed to expand its stock holdings. The resulting portfolio seemed to generate big profits, at least according to Magerman's calculations. Overcome with excitement, he raced to tell Brown what he had discovered. Brown flashed his breathless colleague a look of deep skepticism, but agreed to hear Magerman out. Afterward, Brown still showed little enthusiasm. Mercer had done the coding for the system, after all. Everyone knew Mercer rarely made errors, especially mathematical ones. Crestfallen, Magerman slunk away. His screw-up had branded him a nuisance, not any kind of potential savior. Without much to lose, Magerman brought his work to Mercer, who also agreed to take a look. Sitting at his desk, hunched over his computer, Mercer patiently examined the old code, line by line, comparing it to Magerman's new code. Slowly, a smile formed on his face. Mercer reached for some paper and a pencil from his desk and began working on a formula. He was checking Magerman's work. After about 15 minutes of scribbling, Mercer put his pencil down and looked up. You're right, Mercer told Magerman. Later, Mercer convinced Brown that Magerman was on to something. But when Brown and Mercer told other staffers about the problem that had been uncovered, as well as the fix, they were met with incredulity, even laughter. A junior programmer fixed the problem? The same guy who had crashed the system a few weeks after being hired? Brown and Mercer ignored the doubts and restarted the system, with Simons' backing, incorporating the improvements and corrections. Instant gains resulted, defying the skeptics. The long losing streak was over. Magerman finally received the appreciation he longed for, receiving a cherished pat on the back from Brown. This is great, Simons boomed at a weekly meeting. Let's keep it going. A new era for both Magerman and the firm seemed within reach. <laughs>